This is Anthony Pascal. And this is Lori Elster. And this is All Access Star Trek Episode 100. I feel like we need some fanfare or something. <laughs> but to celebrate, we have a great guest on today's podcast. It's the executive producer of Star Trek Prodigy, Aaron Waltke. And we're super excited to have him on. But before we do that, we're going to cover some news super quick, starting with the Emmy nominations, which were finally announced. And Star Trek got five nominations in uh, categories that we kind of expected. It's all stuff they've been nominated before. It's same number of nominations as last year. In fact, many of these nominations are the same exact categories. So uh, prosthetic makeup, sound editing. They got two in sound editing. Both uh, Picard and Strange New Worlds are going up against each other. Then Picard got period makeup prosthetic makeup and then sci-fi costumes which i think it's they don't get the costumes nomination as often so that was good i'm surprised there was no visual effects especially for discovery which i feel had good visual discovery got no nominations in fact but it's often been nominated for visual effects as as star trek i think the you know over the life of the franchise that's the most common win for the franchise and uh, and very deserved. Like whatever you think about the new shows, they look fantastic. It's weird, but you know the Emmys are always weird. Yeah, I was also surprised Strange New Worlds didn't get costumes. I think what they've been, I think the work they've been doing is amazing with their costumes. I was just going to say those are all part of the Creative Arts Awards. So that is going to be on September 10th, whereas the main Emmy Awards are on the 12th. Let's move on to some big news from Lower Decks. We finally got a release date, um, August 25th for season three. New episodes every Thursday. There are 10 in the season. Of course, the whole main cast is returning. No changes there. There's a fun poster that they put out that follows the tradition of their posters. So this one is, is inspired by Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. I don't know if there's any, uh, you know, rationale behind their choice, but they, you know, because the search for Spock has a kind of ghostly Spock image at the center and then the cast underneath it. And this one, they chose Rutherford to be kind of the <laughs> ghostly figure. I'm not sure if that means anything or they just had to pick one. But um, I've seen some speculation out there, but <laughs> that it's <laughs> that, that there's... there's some deeper meaning to that. Yeah. Yeah. But who knows? I don't know. Yeah, there's been some season three-ish interviews, not really much, mostly season two Blu-ray interviews, but they talk a little bit about season three. The only thing that Mike has revealed, we're going to be learning more about Rutherford's backstory and his implant, which we know there's some mystery. If you remember last season, Mm -hmm. there was that weird scene with the kind of surgeons working on his implant. So there's, so I don't know, there could be something going on here. That's good. I've actually been curious about that since the show started. The only other news we got out of you know those interviews was there's going to be cameos. Tawny's really excited because there's pe- friends of hers. So I think it's you know people from you know her acting and, and improv world, and then Star Trek you know cameos as well. Yeah, she said some folks from within the Star Trek universe that she's very excited about. So that should be fun. She also has been mentioning you know she had that podcast, the Pod Directive which kind of went on a disappeared for a while. And she said, you know, almost everybody who was working on it um, has left to do other things, but I think they're close to getting it back. I think I saw recently that they may be restarting it. 
She did she's... post something on TikTok because, you know, I'm always on the TikTok. Yeah, I was like, Tony, <laughs> you're on TikTok. <laughs> that was teasing. It was like a thing where she's like uh, calling Paul F. Tompkins, her co-host. It was a tease that they're going to start recording again, basically. Well, good, because I really enjoyed their podcast. I think they're great together. They're very fun. Speaking of the season two Blu-ray, last week we said that we're giving away a copy and we'll announce the winner on our next podcast. The winner will be picked the day this podcast comes out. But just want to thank everyone for entering. There were some creative ways people used Warp Me. If you listen to this podcast Friday morning, there's still time to type in a Warp Me into last week's uh, article. And You have until midnight. So, and also we appreciate all the comments that came. It was nice that people didn't just come and say warp me. People talked about the podcast, talked about Star Trek, had conversations with each other. It was really nice to see. For the season two Blu-ray, Matt Wright did a great write-up and review of it. We also have an exclusive clip. So you'll want to check those out at trekmovie.com. Yeah. If you want to be convinced to buy it, then read this and you will be convinced. And of course, you don't own anything until you actually have physical discs. Yes. So, as Matt always likes to remind us. Yeah, well, it's true. That stuff disappears. It's true. Absolutely. Let's move on to a little bit of Star Trek Discovery, which is actually filming right now, season five. Another interview came out, another video interview from when she Sinequa uh, was in the UK. So you could watch this whole thing. Um, we have the video at Trek Movie mostly she talks about season four stuff which you know because it's new to the uk but not to us but the interview delved into this thing where the you know the interview asked her you know what do you say to the people the critics of the show because we know there's critics of the show you think (laughs) (laughs) they're very vocal those critics and she's like i'm really glad you asked this you know and she went on this big thing about how she they listen to the fans they appreciate the fans so much and they you know she wanted to make it clear that they're listening and they get it yeah she was very respectful i thought like basically she was saying like the fan base is an intelligent fan base and so they have even if we're still doing what we do she was basically just saying like we hear your concerns and we understand where you're coming from She also made the point, which I think is fair, which is we had to find our identity and settle into it. So, yes, she, you know, she admits that the show is very different in her words to other Star Trek shows, not just the serialization of the show. But I do feel like if you walked away from the show in season one, it's worth checking out again, especially binge watching, which I really have always felt the show works much better as a binge watch. Yeah, I think Discovery and Picard both. You and I mostly liked season four. Yeah, we did. There's a lot of good stuff in there. I just I I think its biggest problem was, you know, stretching things out over too many episodes. But uh, a lot of good stuff. I always look, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for Discovery. And I always find things to like about it. In fact, I've been thinking about a season one rewatched. Hmm. She didn't really have anything to say about season five because she's not allowed to talk about it except to say fluffy things. Um, <laughs> but she was asked like, okay, now you're in season five. Have you talked to the showrunners about an end game for the show? And she said something interesting. She says, the show's definitely rolling forward, thankfully, which means she believes there's going to be more than season five. Yep. She says there hasn't been talk about the end game yet. And they're talking about other things they want to do in the future. 
Yeah, she says there's there's forward thinking, you know, and they're so they are looking ahead. And they're not having conversations about the end of it yet. I like when networks and outlets say, okay, this is your last season, you know, make it count. Yes. So I do hope that they plan ahead and maybe they get, maybe it runs six seasons, maybe it runs seven seasons, but whatever the last season is. And by the way, seven is like this weird number that Trek fans have decided is the right amount of seasons, <laughs> you know, just because three shows did it that way, but there's no right number, especially because they're doing, you know, different numbers of episodes anyway. But um, right. whatever they pick, they should go out on a bang. They should build it around a finale and end the show. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they will. I don't think it'll be a the only reason they wouldn't do that is if it was a complete surprise, which is how you end up with like Turnabout Intruder is your final episode. <sighs> they ended up talking about like she said, oh, you know how much she loves the character and how she'd love to come back in 30 years like Kate Mulgrew and Pat um, right. Stewart have. So that'll be interesting. So, you know, because what episode of the All Access Star Trek podcast will we be on in 30 (laughs) 30 years? (laughs) We'll be driving our rocket cars by the time that happens. The ones we've been promised, the hover cars. (laughs) So coming up soon is San Diego Comic-Con, which is part of the reason that uh, we're taking a little break, too. But just so you know what's going on, the big panels are all on Saturday, July 23rd, uh, the big Hall H panels. They're being moderated by Leah Thompson, which is pretty cool, I think. Um, And there's going to be a panel for Picard, panel for Lower Decks, and Strange New Worlds. So Tony is going to be at all of those. Yeah, it's it's like one panel with three sub-panels, so... You know, Alex Kurtzman and Rod Roddenberry are going to be on all of them. And and then they're going to rotate in and out different guests. So for Picard, it's going to be Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden. And then they'll leave and Jack and Tawny and, you know, Mike McMahon will show up for Lower Decks. And then they'll leave and Anson and the cast and uh, the showrunner from Strange New Worlds will show up. And there's not going to be one for Prodigy and there's not going to be one for Discovery, which is filming. I'm very excited about it. They're also promising reveals and surprises um, and teasing what's ahead. So I'm expecting, here's, I'm going to make my predictions. A Picard teaser trailer, a full-on actual trailer for Lower Decks, because they revealed a poster and the date, but no trailer. So, because they they still haven't released any trailer. They released a little teaser in April. Yeah, and the show's really close to premiering. Yeah. Strange New Worlds season two. I doubt we're going to get video, but like some pictures maybe would be a good guess uh, from season two. And maybe something I something that's not about any of those shows. Maybe something about another show. I don't know. They're, you know, they, they are promising, a, you know, surprises. So. so it could be another show. It could be some of the other things that Alex has talked about that they're doing other not just TV shows, as he said. Right. Hey, maybe um, I should check with Nick Meyer and see see if they're going (laughs) to roll out the the, uh, SETI Alpha 5 audio drama, you know. So hopefully there is something. It'll be great to hear about these three shows, but it'll also be great to hear about something new and cool. So keep your eye on Trek Movie Twitter, especially that day. So we'll get stories up as quickly as we can, but we'll definitely be posting. I say we, I mean you, we'll definitely be posting. Well, it'll be Christine. Oh, you and Christine, yeah. Yeah, she'll be 
probably handling the tweets. She's much better at that than I am the live Great. tweeting. But uh, and hopefully you could help out uh, from home base on some of the news and stuff coming out of there. Yep. So let's switch to Strange New Worlds news. The season's over, obviously. Uh, we're going to talk about the post finale interview. So we're going to be talking spoilers. So if you haven't seen it yet and you want to skip ahead, check the show notes for when the interview starts so you don't get spoiled. And here we go. In three, two, <laughs> one. <laughs> When thinking about what we were talking about last week, we did learn some new things about how they approached the finale and Kirk and stuff like that from all of these interviews that were done after the show. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, you and I were speculating, like, like they saw the finale is Pike coming to grips with his fate. So that's not going to be this thing that's hanging over him for the rest of the series, which I think is interesting. One thing that um, uh, Kiva said We've we talked earlier, you know, when you interviewed Anson Mount, and he talked about taking big swings, and he picked up on that phrase, and he said it, that if you compared season one to season two, they were just bunting in season one, and season two is when they're really taking the big swings. So, do you think that that means big swings like big original series callbacks, or just big risky stories? I just think it's them doing things we're not expecting. And if you really look back at season one, they only did a couple things I didn't really expect. Killing Hammer. That's the biggest one. Which they said, you know, we wanted to show the show has stakes. And I think, you know, when we reviewed that, I'm like, that's what I gave them credit for to say, yeah, they're showing us, especially on a show that's a prequel and the the knock against prequels is, oh, well, everyone's going to make it. And they're like, well, not everyone. It's interesting because they said that they decided that and then they saw him and the show and loved him and felt like, oh, no, like we have this great character. We could write all this great stuff for and we've already decided to kill him off. Well, you know, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't, I guess I'm more for big swings because I want them to do the unexpected. I want them to do the new. I'm only nervous about what that means to them like big do big risky things i love but you know i like the show better when they don't rely on the original series and i feel like they're going to lean more into it as opposed to less yeah that's we'll see and it makes it makes me a little nervous that's all because i do think its strength is all the new stuff you know they did say that scotty's not going to be part of season two although henry said you know we haven't cast a scotty yet I think they're saying Scotty's coming. We just, yep. not now. <laughs> so Just not now. And they said other <laughs> legacy characters are coming. So, yeah, we'll see. And they're, and they're very, very focused on all the Kirk stuff. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff about Kirk because he was kind of a, a surprise. And he was even a surprise to them. Apparently two versions of the script at one point were written, one with and one without Kirk. Uh, Akiva did confirm that they revealed Kirk back in March because of the leaked photos. Right. Um, which is like you shoot on the busiest street in Toronto. That's not a leak. That's a you stood on the busiest street in Toronto. With him with, in uniform. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 that's not a leak. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's a public state. I mean, it's yeah. whatever, you know. So, but at least kudos for them for not like pretending they didn't do it, but they should have. You know, knowing right. that was going to happen. So they have tried to explain away 
let's face it, the, the, the reaction to Paul Wesley as Kirk was mixed. Henry Henry's position is this. Um, the Kirk you see in Balance of Terror is a serious Kirk, and this is a different timeline, and that's the Kirk, but he's not that way in season two, which sounds a little defensive. Yes. And Paul Wesley has also given some interviews and he's gone way out of his way, rightfully so to say, I'm not doing, you know, the worst thing in the world is to do an imitation of William Shatner because that would be disrespectful. Well, what um, else? It would be bad. It wouldn't even be a good choice. Because it's like you can't, you know, because only Shatner could do Shatner. Not even Chris Pine. Never. Every once in a while, Chris would do, Pine would do kind of a Shatner-esque moment. And he's talked about that in interviews where there was like little things he would do. But, but he I, wasn't I, doing Shatner. He was doing his take on on Kirk, right. on Shatner's Kirk, but on Kirk. Wesley, I, I certainly in the finale, I feel like he got in his own head and he was trying so hard not to be Shatner that he was nothing. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. But he also said that this and, and Henry is so the season two version of Kirk is definitely not going to be that Kirk, which is which reinforces why they should have killed that Kirk in my mind. Because right. they're saying we're not going back to that timeline. It's Lieutenant Kirk on the Farragut. He's younger. He's more fun. He's exciting. It's going to be great. Sounds good. You know, so let's hope that's what's happening is that what we saw was this more serious Kirk. They were playing it a little straight um, because it was really about Pike and, you know, the seriousness of the balance of terror. There's not a lot of time to show his charisma and his charm and his fun. But we'll see all that in season two. And then they also keep talking about how it's he's not a replacement for Pike. This is Pike's show. And they say that, but then in the same interview or some of the other wrap-up interviews, they also go, but yeah, it would be really great to be able to get to that original series era and do all of that. So, but years from now, they're not saying like anything. Right, they're too. saying right now it's Pike's show and that's what we're focused on. That's what we're working on. We don't have a pickup for season three, but we're planning for it. You have to plan far ahead because you have to figure out all this stuff. But as much as they said that's not what we're doing now, it, it, it's clear that it is their end game, I think. I mean, you've yeah. been saying this for a long time. Um, and obviously the fact that every time they say we're not doing that, they then kind of go, you know, but if, if we could, we would like to do that. <laughs> In, indeed. Now, Akiva talked a little bit about crossovers, but again, because when Alex Kurtzman said it, he said there's going to be crossover, right? Yep. But it, I think that while that may be true, it doesn't sound like it's anytime soon because Akiva talks about it like something they're thinking about. So it doesn't sound like season two, there, you know, or he's lying, which is always possible. But everybody seems to be saying like, yeah, that'd be really fun. And I hope we get to do it. Yeah, he's saying he hopes to do it, hopes to say yes to that question of how we do it soon, which sounds like they're season three planning. So the crossover, the big Star Trek universe crossover may not be a 2023 thing. It may be a 2024 thing, which to me is all, is like two years later than it should be. Um, well, it does take a lot of planning. I guess, but come on, you've got five shows on the air and you had five shows, you know, and you had the whole pandemic to figure something out. So. Um, well, anyway, someone on our boards, and I wish I could remember who it was, and I apologize for not remembering, had a great, it was sort of a crossover. It was more on the line of um, trials and tribulations, but thought that Lower Decks should visit 
the animated series. And I was like, that is such a great idea and could be visually so much fun. Because they've done some animated series gags where they like they had a picture of Kirk and Spock from the animated series. But I'm not getting like how that. So the characters. They'd have to do it like Trials and Tribulations. It's all done filmation style. Yeah. But would they notice like they'd go. You suddenly have left less definition in that. Right. It, it Why do you always run exactly the same way? I don't, I feel like, and it's, just, I loved the idea there. I feel like there's so much, there's so many creative choices that you could make. And I hope someone suggests this to Mike McMahon, because I think it's a really funny idea. It wouldn't even have to be a whole episode. And that background behind you, wasn't that the same one as before? <laughs> and why is that character missing a leg? Right. <laughs> and why do all these other guys sound like the same guy? Yeah. Um, so, okay. <laughs> I mean, only if it's very meta is it going to work. Because otherwise it would just be weird. You know, just right. be like, no, suddenly that's... the animation looks crappy. I mean, they'd yep. have to like be aware of it. Of course they would. <laughs> well, that's all the news for the week. So I think it's time for us to talk to Aaron Watke and all about Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, joining us now is Aaron J. Watke, who is a co-executive producer on Star Trek Prodigy and a listener to the All Access Star Trek podcast. Welcome to the pod. Yes, thank you. I, I guess, what, what, what should I say? Long-time listener, first-time caller? <laughs> <laughs> or the, I, I suppose that's not strictly true, because I think you played a little bit of one of our interviews on the on it before. But this is the first time we've talked directly on the podcast, so I'm very excited to be here. Well, we're so excited. I just re-binged Olive Prodigy, which you know because you see me on social always going, I love Prodigy so much. <laughs> yes. Um, but I just, I get so emotional every time I watch it. Like it's such a personal show for me as well as this gorgeous sci-fi story. So I'm very excited that you're on our podcast. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And, you know, it, Star Trek Prodigy, I think I can safely speak for everybody on the crew. It, it's a very personal story. You know, people often ask, like, what's my favorite character or this or that? And it's it's a little bit like, who's your favorite child? You know, but it, a, a more accurate description is like, what's your favorite part of yourself? Because in some degree, I think, at least with almost every character I've written, usually I'm pulling out some aspect of myself and saying, oh, what if I kind of heightened that element uh, and explored that further? Or what if I had made that choice in my life instead of this one? Or what's some key emotion from my childhood that I feel like other kids might relate to? And that's usually how we wound up with the characters like Rock Talk or uh, Dal or Gwyn um, or Murph, I suppose. <laughs> um <laughs> Is usually it's finding you know elements of ourselves that we you know, that we think are relatable, and so I'm glad that you also find it very personal because it's about as personal of a story I think as as any story I've written. I just think there's so much emotional truth in it, even when it's you know well it's zero who if if someone looks at them they go crazy, and so you have to add an out. But then you have this emo these emotional moments that are so real and true, and just sort of get to the core of of what human beings are. Yeah. And, and, you know, isn't that always the, the sort of majesty of Star Trek is, you know, you have, I think even when you in classic Star Trek, humanity is learning more about themselves by venturing out and seeing uh, civilizations and new life uh, that is distinctly not like them. 
um, and learning how to where their own boundaries exist and where those boundaries need to be kind of redefined. Um, and I think Deep Space Nine, especially at least for me, was a great sort of benchmark of trying to imitate in some ways because over half the cast on Deep Space Nine were aliens that were not a part of Starfleet looking in and saying, uh, wow, these, these humans like their root beer. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's positively insidious. You know, you talk about how these characters have a kind of personal connection to yourself and the writers, but I feel like all of them are also classic Star Trek characters. And, you know, would you say that some characters more or less have inspirations to other classic Star Trek characters, perhaps? Yeah, I think that, you know... W- I think part of the fun of Star Trek is finding sort of new characters and new and uh, new ways in. But uh, that being said, there's always this sort of underlaying substructure, I think, of any Star Trek show, uh, which usually is codified through the roles, you know, the, like the bridge crew of you have your engineer, uh, you know, you have your medical officer, you have your captain and those tend to have certain archetypes that that they fall into like you know i would say even though obviously scotty and o'brien are very different characters there there's that venn diagram does meet in the middle of uh you know the sort of persnickety uh i'm not a miracle worker type engineer who's just trying to <laughs> trying to get his blue collar job done and has his overseers constantly <laughs> ask him to do it faster and quicker which i think is something all of us can relate to <laughs> in, in today's society um and so yeah and they they both don't like taking vacations too yeah that's true which is a very <laughs> midwestern sentiment i will say <laughs> like, <laughs> as someone from uh greenwood uh bloomington indiana area uh, as Captain Janeway will be, um, I I can definitely attest to the fact that anytime my wife is encouraging me to take a vacation, I'm like, but they might have a question. They might need to know how a Heisenberg compensator works. And she's like, you can email them at the end of the day and <laughs> enjoy Scotland, Aaron. Within the writer's room, like... Are you that guy? I mean, aren't there other? Because, I mean, you first came on our radar, I think, on Twitter before the show came out. We started talking about on the pod. We said there's at least one writer we know is a nerd because <laughs> yes. y- you you were talking about like Cetacean Ops. And this is well before Mike McMahon showed us Cetacean Ops, you know, and uh, so but are you that guy or are there more super fans, would you say, within the writer's room as well? I will say I'm I'm not the only super fan in the writers room but I certainly am one of the more vocal <laughs> and I I I I would say I I'm if I'm being totally honest I I think my it was a sort of a tie between myself and Shauna Benson for like the most hardcore Star Trek fans and then uh the rest of the writers room was kind of a cool spectrum right where you had like the hardcore, we know everything sometimes to a fault and grind <laughs> grind this, the writer's room to a, a stop to talk about, you know, whether or not subspace communications can go thousands of light years or whatever. And then you have uh, sort of like a middle version where everybody kind of had their favorite Star Trek, you know, like, oh, vo- you know, like Lisa Schultz Boyd. She was like, I watched every episode of Voyager. That was my show. I watched a little bit of TNG and this and that. But they, I think there was only a few of us like myself that like, I've seen every episode of Enterprise, you know, <laughs> like, like, 
And our our season one producer, Mac Middleton, was also like that. He wasn't in the writer's room, but he was a hardcore Star Trek fan. And then you had other people that were like, you know, I've seen the classic episodes and I've seen, you know, all the classic movies. And, you know, this is as much a learning experience as we kind of uh, go through the ups and downs of writing a Star Trek show. And I think that was also a really valuable perspective to have. Like, obviously, we didn't want to hire people that hated Star Trek. But having somebody who had perhaps, you know, um, not as an encyclopedic exposure to it, uh, one of the mandates of of Star Trek Prodigy was how do we introduce these what we think are fundamental concepts of of the sort of the mythos and the ethos of Star Trek to new audiences. And so having someone that uh, would could pause and say, wait, wait, what did you just say about universal translators? <laughs> and then we would kind of be, be able to break that down and say, oh, yeah, well, they kind of operate off of it's never really fully been explained, but they operate off of maybe uh, a, a form of sort of brainwave pattern recognition and then transmitting the an approximation, you know, like and then uh, once we kind of got that idea out of like, oh, that's actually something that I think new audiences might not realize that Trek fans might take for granted then we're like oh how can we kind of turn that on its head and explore that in a way that maybe hasn't been seen a lot even in star trek that's a very long-winded answer to say it was a it was a pretty broad sort of rainbow of of uh, trek knowledge in the room um and what is like in that writer's room sort of what is the the tone like do you guys have disputes about things is it super collaborative or people breaking off into groups like what's what's the feeling in there it's first of all, it's I think it's very collaborative. You know, it's something that even the Hagemans and myself took from the Tales of Arcadia series is we always kind of try to operate from a place of, you know, best idea wins. And then the person who's running the room, you know, I was a showrunner on the third installment of Tales of Arcadia called Wizards. And then uh, on the second season of Prodigy, uh, I'm co-executive producer and head writer, so I'm also running the room there. My function is sort of the referee, and I, I kind of try to take it upon myself to draw out those interesting ideas. And if someone has an idea that's totally contrary, or they have a reservation, or they have a thing like, I don't like that, I usually like will pause and actually try to draw it out of them to understand where what they're you know, concern, or we, we would call them concern fish, which is a very writer's <laughs> room term uh, that apparently was used on a few other sci-fi shows like the 100, I guess, uh, that was brought over by uh, the Benson sisters. So like, basically, you know, we had this spectrum of like, if you have a, uh, how big of a monkey wrench are you throwing into the, the gears, <laughs> you know? And it was, it was like, you have a concern fish or like a problem minnow, or I think it went all the way up to like, you know, I forget it was a world destroying shark or something like like, you know, but on Tales of Arcadia, we had something similar where we would, uh, which is a term that we got from Guillermo del Toro, where he would go not to unwrap a turd, but <laughs> so, <laughs> so it, 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 you know, it's you have to kind of come up with the, these silly sort of euphemisms and language because otherwise it really is just like. Uh, you know, talking about story points all day and saying, no, my version's right. No, your version's right. And ultimately, like, uh, you know, like any sort of Hegelian dialectic, the answer is almost always in the middle, or it's finding what we like about both spiritually and then finding something that satisfies both, even if it's not exactly like what each person's idea was. And it that kind of collaboration, I find very exciting. 
because, um, you know, it pushes me to come up with new and interesting takes or angles on story points or science fiction concepts that I never would have come up with on my own, just staring at a computer at two in the morning, you know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that that was, that's always the, we try to keep the, the ideas very open and flowing. And in that regard, you know, I think it's, you can get to some very interesting places. Um, and maybe this is too, like, you know, how the sausage is made, but there's this thing called the Pomodoro method that, uh, you know, it's supposed to help with productivity. I'm a, I'm a big believer of that, even in story discussions where you'll try to crack a story for like an hour, everybody's exhausted. And then I'll just suddenly take a break and, you know, we'll just start talking about the latest episode of severance or whatever for 15 minutes. And then we'll kind of come back to it or we'll jump over to something else. And then as we're doing that, inevitably your brain is kind of working on some other uh, problem and eventually we'll come back and like, aha, that's way better, you know? And there's this principle in, in long form storytelling where you don't have to have all the answers figured out immediately. You just got to figure out what your big tent poles are first and then the rest will start to kind of evolve and reveal themselves. And so that that's very much the process that we try to do. Uh, on on Star Trek Prodigy is just try to leave leave room for I I forget who it was it was a jazz musician who said like you have to leave you, you have to leave space for God to walk into the room and I th- I think I don't think he was literally talking about like a religious experience but just that act of sort of epiphany or realization uh, I think or discovery no pun intended I think is really important <laughs> to any sort of uh, uh, you know creative endeavor. You mentioned the hundred and I, I know that you and other people in the writer's room have a, a mix of experience in both animation and live action, as well as shows for kids and shows for general audience. And it, it, it must be a, like, is it, you must come up with ideas and then go, well, that would be a great thing for next generation, but does it work for this show? Does it work for to introduce new audiences to Star Trek. Is that, do you, do you ever, is that ever like a struggle to find that balance? I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said there weren't ideas that, that would work better in a live action show than, uh, than an animated show. But usually that's because uh, of the less, the, the animated format and the audience, because in my opinion, you know, great storytelling kind of transcends age and it is very, I think I mentioned this before, sort of a, a four-quadrant storytelling experience. Again, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> that, that, you know, it's a, a, a good story is a good story. And so, but the the biggest, I think, issue that we ran into is, okay, a lot of great Star Trek stories only work because you have that full hour to let them kind of unfurl, Right. And so when you try to compress that down into less than half the time that you would ordinarily have, you have to take certain shortcuts. And I think certain stories are just more difficult to tell uh, if you don't have that slow roll revelation or, you know, the, the classic Star Trek kind of formula is start with something surprising or outlandish, uh, go down that path, exploring how sort of surreal it might be. Uh, and then around the midpoint, uh, there's a, a twist where you start to realize like, oh, there's a scientific explanation for this. Uh, and then try working frantically with your your fellow crewmen to find some third way out or solution before it, you know, uh, whatever disaster <laughs> befalls uh, their their fate. And so 
trying to compress that down into 22 minutes can be very difficult. Um, and so there's not as much time to just have, you know, four uh, ready room <laughs> discussions, you know, or observation <laughs> lounge chit chats. Like if you're lucky, you can get one and then maybe sort of like a touchback, a, a, a reevaluation towards the third act. But it, it, that's that reevaluation is usually done while they're in the middle of doing it, <laughs> you know, which isn't the, the worst thing in the world. It just means your pace is a little bit more um, precise and every word matters. Whereas, you know, when I, when I rewatch some old school Star Trek, I'm, I'm so envious of them to be able to have just like another casual conversation where they reiterate all the stakes and remind you of everything and how it works and just, and then just kind of play with this idea and then they move away from it. And then they're like, uh, you know what, let's go, let's go to 10 forward and have lunch and just talk about something else. <laughs> I'm like, ah, I wish I could have more of those scenes. But, and yet, somehow, like maybe it's because of the economy of it, though you guys really pack those things all in together. Like, like the scene in the mess hall when Rock Talk and Jenkin Pog are eating, they go to eat. Mm -hmm. So that's what made me think of it. But of course, there's that's such a key emotional story point at the same time. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the trick of it, right? And that's perhaps my secret sauce is, you know, you can have those scenes, but they just have usually have to do triple duty. And that's not uh, something that every writer can do easily, especially for like every single scene. Usually in a, an hour long, for instance, a scene will be about one thing between two characters. And a lot of the scenes that we do on Prodigy have to be about five things at once that hopefully are thematically similar, but also have a way to drive the plot forward in an organic way. And so it's, you know, it's a wild way to write scenes, but uh, I've gotten quite good at it over the years. You know, I've, <laughs> I've written well over 100 episodes of television now, which is the fun thing about working a lot in animation is because every time I talk to people that have worked only in live action, I'll, they'll say like, oh, how many episodes did you have on your season of TV? And like, oh, I wrote one. And then I co-wrote another. And I was like, cool, I wrote 40. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, speaking of 40, if I remember correctly, in April at an event in Chicago, Dan Hageman revealed that all of season two, which means the second block of 20 episodes, had already been written by last April. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, they're, the, all, of, all 40 episodes are now in various stages of production, whether it's uh, what's called the script breakdown, which is that what happens immediately after the script where we start to assign, okay, these assets need to be made, these effects need to start being figured out, uh, all the way down through, you know, animatics and then first take animation. And then, and then after that is lighting and special effects and sound mix and scoring uh, so, uh, yeah, we, right now we have, I think, a, about 25 episodes in various stages of production as just different plates that are all spinning at the same time. It's pretty wild. Oh, my God. So voice work, for example, is that yeah. for the next 10? Is that done already? So it must be done by now. So uh, some of it is. So typically what you do in animation is you do what's called a scratch track. Uh, and that's just to kind of really iron out the kinks of the story and the blocking. And just in case we need any pickups to kind of explain why they're running down this corridor instead of that one or whatever. So that way, by the time you get the actors in, you can get pretty much everything you need for the episodes that then can be passed on to the animators to start matching those performances. Um, so, I think we have we have some recording done at least up through 
um, you know, pretty close to, I think the last, uh, five episodes. And those, those were, I think next week we're doing a, uh, a, a storyboard handout of the finale for season two. So that's, that's how far ahead we are, but also it feels like there's perpetually never enough time to get it right. <laughs> so when you say you're almost finished the voices on season two, you mean episodes 35 through 40. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah. So like I said, what, you know, animation takes a very long time. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just to give you an idea, like, you know, we were writing, we wrote a good portion of the first season uh, in starting like mid 2019, um, you know, which was, I think, before Paramount had even merged with CBS Viacom. <laughs> uh, and so I can't remember if I told you this or not, but I remember after I wrote, for instance, the Kobayashi episode, literally, I think four days later, we were, we had just a, a meeting on the books with like the legal team where they, they were talking about the merger and how it might affect our storytelling. <laughs> and, and I was, I was like, uh, I just p- pitched a story where Spock says the needs of the many, uh, to <laughs> Dell. um, but thankfully, you know, it all worked out and obviously it was, it was fine, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, this show in particular as well, takes a very long time to get right. You know, because there's so many uh, effect shots and there's so much uh, intricacy that you might not get on, you know, like a Jimmy Neutron or something, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's always this weird sort of time dilation effect uh, in a way, because, you know, by the time you actually the episodes out and then by the time it gets nominated for awards and stuff, it's like two and a half years out from when you wrote it. I distinctly remember being at the, uh, I think it was the the Annie Awards or the Emmys, uh, which I was nominated for that year. And I, I remember they played a clip for one of the episodes of Troll Hunters. And I was like, oh, that was a nice little bit of dialogue. And then at like 10 seconds later, I was like, Aaron, you jerk, you wrote that line. You just forgot <laughs> <laughs> because it'd been so long. It's a pretty surreal experience uh, so usually by the time we see the finished episode you're like hey good job past me that's that episode kind of works <laughs> so you wrote the first 10 episodes like way long time ago and you know and a decade ago or whatever you know but the <laughs> you recently went through the experience of having it be you know on paramount plus and people are watching it were you surprised by and you know which characters popped which episodes got certain reactions or did you kind of, you know, because of your experience writing tons of television, did you kind of know what was coming? I think that we all knew that Murph was going to be a hit character. I don't think any of us anticipated Murph being that level of like Murph mania <laughs> happening. <laughs> like we thought it was like, oh, the kids will like it. And then it's just everyone every day I get tweeted at, where's my Murph plushie? Yeah. <laughs> so, which, uh, you know, uh, w- Thankfully, I can now just say like merch is coming, right? But but uh, I think, you know, I, I'm glad that people latched on to Rock Talk, you know, as quickly as they did, you know, because I think she was a, certainly a room favorite. I've always been partial to Zero just because they uh, are very much, you know, close to my heart because sometimes I do feel a little bit like, you know, the alien in the room who doesn't pick up on social cues <laughs> as readily as I should. And I th- I think that we there's other elements that we knew were like, for instance, we intentionally wrote Dal to be a little rough around the edges at first so that he had a starting place as a character. 
and then uh, and then you could really watch his journey as he was shaped like unmolded clay into a, against all odds into a model, you know, Starfleet ensign. Um, and it was uh, I, I think that the the level of sort of reaction, because I think he, he was so far removed from what you would consider a typical Starfleet officer. Uh, I, I think I, I was a little surprised at, but sure enough, within five episodes, I started seeing a, a complete sea change of people saying, oh, actually, I'm rooting for Dal now. I really love him. And then by the end of the first 10, they were like, OK, I'm on board with with him. Absolutely. Which, you know, I guess is the ultimate testament that any writer can hope for is like, hey, this character that I disliked, I actually love now. Uh, which is which is what our tent, intent was. I think we just <laughs> did our job a little too well. <laughs> well, each of the characters has already gone through, well, most of them have already gone through a pretty big change. I mean, Rock Talk, the biggest change, I think, at this point. But Gwen and, and Dal, too. But is that something that's coming with, like, is Zero going to change a lot? Is there a lot of growth that's going to happen there? And, and Jank and Pog? Yeah, I, I, we went in with very specific goals in mind that we wanted every character to have, you know, sort of an arc, if not for every 10 episodes, at least for like every season and then for the series at large, you know, and I, I think that um, that sort of that's kind of Bildungsroman kind of, you know, coming of age tale is evergreen for a reason. And it's because we, we start with all these sort of juvenile aliens who are being thrust into this sort of utopian society for the first time and having the opportunity to truly explore in multiple senses, you know, who they are and what they could become. Um, and so we all kind of put our heads together for the first three weeks or so of Star Trek Prodigy writer's room being open and just brainstormed like who is rock talk why are they this way what are their interests what where do we see them winding up in 10 episodes in 20 episodes in maybe in 40 episodes you know um and that's something we're always kind of reevaluating and and sort of re- reassessing and saying like okay if since now that we've written these episodes and actually seen what their journey is how might that be reflected by this uh, eventuality or this thing that they were exposed to and that's how you find that nice little emotional continuity that you might see in some of your other favorite shows and i think uh, like strange new worlds i think is has done a good job with that sort of thing as well this show because it's a coming of age story there's almost a, a time limit on that i mean do you, do you see there being a we know that you have four groups of 10 episodes or as you call them two seasons um and we haven't heard about them ordering anymore but is there a kind of maximum limit you would see of like 60 episodes 80 episodes or before they get essentially too old to be coming of age they've come a thousand of age. episodes yeah yeah i mean <laughs> if 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 i'm being honest i don't i you know if i had my druthers i would follow them right up to them going through starfleet academy and getting assigned to their own ships and and, and then suddenly getting becoming captain and then you know fighting in the water wars part two like whatever <laughs> like um uh like i i i because it the story is not about them being children it's about children uh, at that crucial crucial threshold of adulthood. And I don't know about you, but like me going into my teenage years and even into my 20s, I still hadn't really figured out who I was. It was this ongoing, uh, you know, every time I started to feel like I got my bearing on things like, oh, now you have to move across the country. Oh, now you have to get a job. Uh, oh, that, jo- <laughs> that, that company collapsed. Now you have to redefine something else. 
your friend, your friends moved away, find new friends, you know, like it's, you're always kind of being (laughs) thrust into this uh, new reality. And, and as Mr. Spock so famously said, that uh, is that change is sort of a natural uh, theme of the universe. So that's kind of like seeing our characters truly sort of start in a place so far outside of Starfleet and then literally kind of come up through it, rise through the ranks. You know, I don't know if we've ever seen that show before. And so I think that the possibilities are limitless. That makes me so happy. I just, (laughs) you know how I feel about these people. (laughs) The core premise of the show, at least for the start, was aliens find a ship and go off in adventures. And it's kind of like Voyager, where the, the, the journey home was the core premise. And when they got home, the show was over. Right. Is there a limit of how long? Because in my mind, I've thought, well, as soon as the ship, if the ship ever gets back to Earth, that would end the show because the Starfleet would take the ship back and they would maybe assign the kids other ships or put them in the academy. You're saying that you you don't need to keep them away from Earth to keep the story going is what you're saying. Uh, What I will say is this is, you know, we talked about that for sure, but we didn't want our show to just be a a just a sequel to Voyager or a repeat of Voyager, because you're absolutely right that Voyager's story was they are trying to get home. And when they get home, that's that's the end of the story. I think some Voyager fans would have liked to see a little bit more post credits. You know, I'm I'm a big fan of the (laughs) the endless like everybody complained about the end of Lord of the Rings having seven endings. I was like, no, bring it on, please. I've (laughs) I've been in the theater for 12 hours. I've earned this. I want to see them happy and I want to see them eat second breakfast. Uh, but, But the point being, you know, I, I don't think any of us ever visualize just like the moment they get to Earth is the end of the series and their story. If anything, their exposure to Starfleet and Earth is something that that is more just like a catalyst in their story, you know, like and that's very much you'll see that reflected in the next 10 as Vice Admiral Janeway, um, you know, enters their lives and they start to see beyond just the theoretical kind of you know, idealized uh, utopian version of the Federation, but also the the duty bound version and what it means in practice to be a Starfleet officer making those tough decisions. And I that that element I think is is not so much the 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 punctuation mark at the end of the series, but rather the secret sauce that'll like the the second booster to get us out of the atmosphere. That's quite an intriguing. Yeah concept because i you know that you introduced this i thought when you guys introduced this idea that the ship has a virus on board and if if they ever touched starfleet they would destroy starfleet and therefore they could never come in contact with starfleet well that's that's certainly a almost like conflict is the engine for story isn't it yeah (laughs) (laughs) but that is that isn't your like hand-waving excuse of why they will never touch Starfleet. Absolutely not. I I will leave no... If there's one thing I want you to take away from this interview, it's that I will leave no Chekhov's gun unfired. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. You know, I mean, this is a terrible transition, but, you know, you mentioned Chekhov, so I'm thinking... Uh, you know, you, you talked about Kobayashi Maru. That was such a nerdy episode. It was important to you. You know, was it difficult to see because it was fairly early on in the, you know, in the first block of 10 or it was like halfway through. 
to kind of nerd out at that level, was that a, a big sell to the network or to the Hagemans, um, you know, and you know, can we expect more super nerdy deep dives like that in each block of 10? I mean, I'll, let me just walk, go through those. First of all, that was an excellent transition of Chekhov. I love that transition. <laughs> I, the only thing you didn't do was say nuclear vessels. Um, uh, but in terms of selling, you know, a, a, as I like to call a sort of Star Trek fire hose of lore, um, you know, or, or sort of nostalgia or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't really that hard of a sell because the, we went, before we even went into breaking those episodes, uh, we talked very diligently just in terms of structure. And, you know, I think we arrived at, at a conclusion that we wanted to keep uh, from going too far down that rabbit hole too quickly because and keep some of that deeper lore at arm's length just until we could kind of figure out who our characters were without the Star Trek of it all or just with a taste of it as they were starting to get their dip their toes of the water of being, you know, true cadets. Um, and so all of us in the room were like, okay, by the time we get to the, what we were calling the midpoint of, you know, sort of season one, a, we were like, I think people are going to be hungry for this and they're going to be so hungry for it that we may as well just make sure that they are aware that we know what we're doing. We know what star Trek is and they're going to, and they're going to get plenty of it. Um, and so as soon as that was arrived, like it was one of those moments where kind of like all eyes kind of turned to me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and so, um, you know, I think, obviously I think the Bensons probably would have loved to write that episode too, but they did a fantastic job with terra firma. And that, that was sort of like really kind of priming, you know, putting a cap on the initial dissension of the crew and then finally realizing, oh, we're, we're stronger as a team. Uh, and that, then it was sort of like that wide open, you know, tension and release to now we could have one of those episodes that was a little bit more, uh, shall we say, uh, you know, crew on the ship, right? Which are some of my favorite episodes where the stakes aren't necessarily world ending, but they have an emotional resonance to them. And so everybody just was like, you know what, uh, let, let's just give them so much Star Trek that they won't know what to do with so that any naysayers will immediately <laughs> be quieted. <laughs> be, and we kind of knew that, you know, two years in advance because Star Trek fans, if anything, are are vocal and predictable. Um, so I, I knew they were because we were, we were so light on some of the Star Trek lore beforehand. Uh, I, I was like, all right, let's just go a little bit nuts and then we'll kind of dial it back. Um, and what's funny is, is like, the, the Hagemans agreed, the room agreed, uh, the studio and the network were like, oh, cool, love those cameos. Like there was like no pushback whatsoever from anybody. But then, of course, by the time we actually uh, we broke it and then I was writing it, and then we got into the logistics of actually trying to make it. Suddenly I was saddled with this <laughs> tremendous task of trying to actually make this episode, especially once we had. Uh, decided or realized that we would be using so much archival audio and then that became sort of my my cross to bear <laughs> for the next few months really trying to get it to where it was uh you know a it actually worked on its own terms were there debates about which characters to include like did that get lively or did you have it all na nailed uh, right away um i mean i had my favorites which uh, pretty much all of them, some of them at least made, made it into the final cut. Like there's nobody on that bridge crew that wasn't like a personal favorite of mine. 
but um yes i mean like we like i would say that the we started breaking the episode and originally it wasn't necessarily uh we were like okay kobayashi is the episode where we get to see all these cameos that like that wasn't the premise of the episode when we had it as like a note card on the board it was dal takes the kobayashi maru and we're like, okay, that's going to be fun unto itself. And then when we actually were breaking it down, it's like, wait a second, what does the Kobayashi Maru look like in the 20, 24th century? And then we were like, wait a second, what did the original Kobayashi Maru look like? And we realized that they all use the original Enterprise bridge crew. And we're like, well, clearly that's part of it. Like you have to have the best of the best as part of the test. Uh, and they're like, well, what would that look like in the age of holograms? And then suddenly, every like this hush kind of fell over the room when everybody realized, oh snap! Like, can we do that? Can we just bring anybody back from all of Star Trek? Because almost certainly they would be considered some of the best of the best by the computer. Uh, and then we started breaking down who would, you know, who would do which, uh, who would be best in each role, and everybody had their own opinions on that, one hundred percent. And so we kind of went around the room and everybody had their say. And of course, by the time we got around to it, we started from a place of, all right, but seriously, what is the best bridge crew? And then by the end of it, <laughs> we looked at the board and we had written down literally every single main character in all of Star Trek. <laughs> so it was <laughs> it was completely unhelpful exercise. And, um, and it wound up just sort of being chosen by, you know, some of it was me, some, but some of it was, you know, kind of, fate and logistics of like who's available you know what audio is available what roles make sense you know and because there's it's not like we have a bunch of episodes where characters just suddenly turn and start explaining what the neutral zone is you know so we had to, we had to kind of work within the parameters we were given can we expect more cameos in the future either of legacy characters be they living or not uh yeah i mean absolutely i think i think we I think the Hagemans have said elsewhere that, that, you know, legacy, I think the, the Star Trek universe, we didn't want our show to be completely divorced from that. And, you know, I think, you know, TNG onwards, there's been this ongoing sort of like, no, no, they are all connected, you know, <laughs> and it, it would feel disingenuous, I think, to, to never sort of reference any of the stuff that came before. And is there an element of small universe syndrome in that? Perhaps. But I also really love the the episode Relics, uh, where, where they just yeah. happen to stumble across Scotty, you know, on a ship uh, on the Enterprise a hundred years later. So, like, I, I don't know, like, it doesn't matter that much to me in terms of like, oh, isn't that convenient? I'm like, everything in Star Trek is convenient. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you, you wouldn't get a story otherwise. However. I think that the important thing is not to have those legacy cameos come in and take over the story and, you know, sort of cast away the, because the first and foremost, this is the story of our young prodigy crew. And if we're going to bring in a new character, it's going to be for a very specific purpose. You know, they're going to have some bearing on their journey and growth as characters and their, their relationship with those characters is going to be meaningful beyond uh, boy, wasn't it great to see Chekhov again? Um, it's going to be like, you know, they, they will be, have substantial roles in the story. So in that regard, I, I think you might not see as many, uh, like every episode is a familiar face calling in, but when you see those characters, it's going to be more impactful. And it, you know, I think that it's, it's safe to say that, that, uh, we're not done in that regard. Cool. Good to know. 
Yeah. And then you have some, you know, the, there were announcements made that you've got like Jason Alexander and Jamila Jamil. We saw little bits of some of these new characters and just at the very end of the 1A finale, I guess I'll call it. Um, how much are those people going to be in it? Like, are we going to get a lot of them or are they not so much? Yeah, I mean, they they are Vice Admiral Janeway's bridge crew. So you'll see you'll see them uh, uh, quite a bit. And, you know, are we going to have like a solo episode with uh, Dr. Noam? I don't I don't think so. But but <laughs> um, but will you have ongoing sort of threads with these characters? Yeah, we, we didn't just want them to be sort of nameless people on the bridge. They have, uh, as I said before, like every character. Uh, means something and is essential in some way and is another part of that tapestry we're weaving. And part of that is uh, purely uh, <laughs> for economic reasons uh, because it costs a lot of money to build a new character rig. And so, right. you know, if we're going to create a character, it's going to be for a very specific purpose and we're going to use them as much as we can. But, you know, in terms of like, you know, teasing what might interactions you might have in the future, you're definitely going to see more of them. Um, you know, and uh, Tellarites, I think, are, are going to be quite fun because, as you've seen, there's a, a different Tellarite, uh, Dr. Noam, played by Jason Alexander, that is on the on Janeway's Admiral Janeway's ship hurtling towards the Protostar. So, you know, and what's kind of fun, too, is like our show, I think, is the first time where you actually get to see both variations of of uh, Tellarite on in the same show. And so, you know, like the uh, Tellarites, as you know, have a very broad phenotype, shall we say, of how they are, how they're physically expressed. Sometimes they have three fingers, sometimes they have five fingers, sometimes <laughs> they have tusks, sometimes they don't, sometimes they have facial hair, sometimes they don't. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that in my head canon, which is now canon because I'm writing Star Trek, damn it. <laughs> Um, is that they, uh, you know, it's a very sort of human centric belief that everybody's humanoid appearance has to mature just so like, why can't there just be like, just the same way that humans have different hair color, uh, you know, Tellarites might have different numbers of fingers. Like, we don't know. Why not? Um, so we're the, on our show though, I'm very excited that we have a five finger Tellarite who's going to come in direct conflict with our three fingered, uh, Jankum Pog. Uh, <laughs> and you're going to, you're going to learn a little, little bit more about that, el those elements. And, uh, you're going to also hear a little bit more about the character, the Prodigy Crew's backstories. And I believe at Mission Chicago, they revealed that Jank, and we've already shown in the show that Jankum Pog is, was from a sl Tellarite sleeper ship. Uh, and, uh, you know, at Mission Chicago, I think Dan on stage said that uh, Jankum technically is over 200 years old. <laughs> um, so he is technically pre-Federation Tellarite that was sent out into the cosmos. So him coming into contact with, uh, with you know, obviously f a finding out that his people are founding members of the Federation, uh, there's going to be some fun stuff there. But then also interacting with another Tellarite, you know, Obviously, they're not known <laughs> for their uh, in great uh, sort of bedside manner, especially Dr. Noam. So I think there's going to be some fun conflict there. The next 10 have been described, I believe, something like Admiral Janeway is on the hunt for the Protostar and to find out what happened to Chakotay. That, yes. is it, would you consider that's a story? So do you consider each 10 to have its own little 
like the first 10 was about the diviner and find, you know, the mystery behind why the diviner wants the ship. The second 10 are about Janeway searching for the ship essentially. Um, and then there's going to be a different arc for episodes 20 through 30 and 30 through 40. Is it, is that how you're structuring the show? In, in some regards? Yes. We want each, each section to kind of have their own vibe, you know? Uh, and I think that's the, in my mind, that's the key to keeping something fresh, you know, even in a show like Avatar, the last airbender, which, you know, even though it was serialized, it also was episodic, but they would have like sequences where like, okay, this is the bossing say sort of earth kingdom kind of, uh, section. Um, and that's definitely something we did by, uh, design and intent in my mind, the next 10, there's somewhere between the fugitive and uh, the hunt for red October, which was uh, another really big influence, I think. So I do want to know, like, first of all, are we going to get everybody's backstory of, of how they ended up as, you know, slave labor and also all the unwanted who are freed? Are we going to get any follow up on how things are going for them? Well, uh, as you know, I am limited somewhat by my NDA, but I can't. I will say that you are going to get more backstory on on all of the main crew, um, and you know, I think some of it. it, it we're not going to have them literally just go read out a, an autobiography, but I think you will have, shall we say, snapshots that will, I think, elucidate enough that you'll be able to fill in the blanks. You know, because we always wanted to kind of keep it from a kid's perspective first. And I don't think a kid is really in that sort of autobiographical mode yet. <laughs> they tend to just kind of talk about stuff that happened to them, you know, or. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think in that regard, you know, you'll you I think you'll get enough that you'll understand where they came from and kind of like the starting point before the starting point. Um and yeah, that's a, that's about as much as I'll say, but I, I think you'll be interested, very intrigued by what we reveal. I mean, cause it does come up. Um, why do none of them talk about going home? Right. Yeah. Or their parents, stuff like that. Right. Yes. And you, you will get, a, I think a little bit more, uh, uh, clarity, I suppose on that for better, or for worse, none of them aside from perhaps Gwen uh, you know, had much of a, a home before Tars Lamora. They just had a life and you'll get, you'll see elements of that life. Oh, Janeway herself, hollow Janeway herself has had a bit of an arc. One question that we've debated, you've probably heard us debate is, did she know from the beginning that these weren't real cadets? So, I mean, I, I, the the short answer is it's complicated, <laughs> uh, but I and I thought that we had sort of given enough that the people would piece it together. But I do occasionally see this debate continue. But you know, as you can see, the Fauna Cot uh, who captured the Protostar, you know, kind of tinkered with the uh, the programming on board the 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 Protostar, and specifically with hologram Janeway's programming to. Uh, to make her more amenable to people that perhaps were not Starfleet officers to be aboard the, the, the ship and teach them how to fly it and identify them as such. Right. So what's interesting about hologram Janeway is like, she is sort of like um, it's almost like uh, this is going to be a weird metaphor, but you know, the film, a beautiful mind, right. 
like you have this this genius professor who's excellent at math but then you just suddenly have this guy that shows up and is just sort of like oh there's he's a member of the CIA and he's trying to conscript me to <laughs> and then you find out that's uh that's actually like a rogue uh part of his brain uh, you know i think uh, hologram Janeway has multiple sort of conflicting algorithms that are happening, you know, memory blocks that she didn't know were there, elements of her code that may not be part of her own code that are at, at conflict. So, you know, I, in that regard, you know, she is sort of like, um, she's not like a hologram fresh off the factory floor. She's been altered, but she also has elements of her personality and her programming as a Zimmerman hologram. That's an exclusive. In my opinion, I think she was created by uh, Dr. Zimmerman. Uh, <laughs> um, and th that capability of evolving beyond their programming and achieving their own sort of sentience and modifying and changing their, their programming. So, so, you know, like anybody like who maybe has personal demons or shortcomings and, and they're kind of learning how to navigate around them and still be productive and helpful uh, and find their purpose. I think Hologram Janeway is on a journey of her own to do that as well of like, OK, this is these are the cards I've been dealt. This is the situation I've been given. Uh, but for better, or for worse, I, I do care about these kids and and it's deep ingrained in my programming to to teach them, you know, how to be Starfleet and to, to get them to, to the Federation. So that's, that's kind of like where she is as a character. And, but initially I think there were parts of her that maybe knew, but then there was other elements that were like, that were sort of perhaps part of that rogue Vaunicott programming that were saying, Hey, you should trust these kids and, you know, make sure that they, that they can use the ship properly. You, you just gave me, something that I want to see now for sure. Well, two things I want to see, and there's no way you're going to reveal if either of them are happening, but God, now I'd love to see hologram Janeway and the doctor, the holographic doctor have a scene together. Cause he could say, now, you know what it feels like. Yeah. Uh, um, and then it's, or, or with Dr. Zimmerman himself. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm sure you're going to tell us now that which episodes those two scenes are in and how, and how it goes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I will. I will lay all that out, and then uh, I'll send the bill of my NDA violation to you, <laughs> with, with all the zeros attached of how much is. It. No problem. No problem. <laughs> so, you know, Alex. Though it's it's been confirmed, there's going to be a crossover. Recently, Kate Mulgrew kind said, you know, we're going to do live action. So let let me just ask you a generic question: of Could you imagine these characters? in live action? I mean, the short answer is yes, absolutely. And uh, I very much want that to happen. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, um, and we've been talking with other shows and, you know, even like Discovery, we're like, feel free to toss a vat of cotton there if you want, you know, like whatever. <laughs> like, you know, just trying to find some ways that they get, let them know that they're not going to be stepping. So we're like, we're always talking and finding ways to, to make that stuff happen as best we can. And even if it's like, oh, are you using this type of ship? Are you using this station? Are you using this crew? Are you using this character? And you know, finding ways to make the, make sure they're all informed and part of a great tapestry, uh, which, in my opinion, was I think one of the great triumphs of the Berman era, for better or for worse, was that you know you had shows like Deep Space Nine, which were like this connective hub that connected you know all of Star Trek together, and you'd see crossovers. Uh, between them. And I, I don't think anybody has any interest in not continuing that tradition. 
Well, I have a totally unrelated question that's about you specifically. Okay, sure. Okay. So I heard you mention, I was listening to an interview with you, that your dad is a dentist who started a clown college. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Which interview was that? It was a podcast about um, writing for animation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember that one. Okay. It, that you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I do have uh, a, a rather peculiar history in my life and, you know, um, it's not uncommon for, I think when I interviewed on Star Trek Prodigy, for instance, you know, I sat down at Secret Hideout and I was meeting all the executive producers there and almost immediately uh, the, the conversation gets derailed when Dan is like, oh, have you seen his Guinness World Record? And I'm like, oh, have you? And, and <laughs> then they pulled out pictures of uh, for the, the uninitiated. Uh, in college, I broke the Guinness World Record for most T-shirts worn at once by a single human being. Uh, How so many? There, uh, 160. And uh, it was, <laughs> I, I look like... Uh, um, the blueberry girl from Willy Wonka. And it was, uh, I almost died doing it because the, the circulation gets cut off uh, around every extremity. Um, but uh, immediately we just talked about that for like 35 minutes. And then it was like, well, our meeting's over. And then Heather Caden's like, wait, we need to talk about Star Trek. <laughs> um, but yes, my dad is a dentist and he did, he founded a, a or he founded a clowning troupe through our local uh, church. And it was sort of like a, uh, we would do performances at like parades and, uh, <laughs> and at uh, um, hospitals for like sick kids. We do like, you know, balloon animals and magic tricks and stuff. And uh, it's always a crowd pleaser <laughs> whenever I mention that. Um and, uh, you know, you'd be surprised. There's so much random stuff that's sort of rattling around in my gourd that suddenly will become relevant. Where I'm like, actually, that's not how an august clown would look. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just Star Trek lore. I mean, speaking, you know, sorry to return to Star Trek, but it makes me <sighs> like, what, what was your first contact with the franchise? What, what, when did it all start for you? I think I've mentioned this elsewhere, but um, it was literally one of my first memories as a human being. And I, I think uh, I, I think I once said it was like the first my first grace with sentience and Kate Mulgrew made fun of me very heavily for that. <laughs> uh, she was like, my first grace with sentience. Uh, and uh, but she's also a very eloquent speaker. So she, I think I was going to say it. she talks like that. Yeah. Um, but um yeah, I was I I must have been about 3 or 4 and I'm a child of the 80s and one of my earliest memories is sitting on a couch with my dad uh watching television and I remember like it was very exciting and I didn't know why and I remember an image of the 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 saucer separating from the secondary hall and then zipping off and there was like a big, you know, sort of grid of sorts. And then I remember and then I realized years later I was watching the premiere of Star Trek The Next Generation live as it premiered back in September of 1987. Um, and that love of Star Trek never really went away. You know, I uh, after that, I watched it regularly on syndication. You know, it was, it was on after school every day they would play two episodes on my local fox affiliate in central indiana and uh during the summers when my both my parents worked uh they would drop me off at my aunt's house and uh she would just put on pbs 
and not realizing that our local PBS station would air reruns of uh, TOS. And so I would watch a bunch of stuff that was probably way too crazy for me to be seeing as like a, as a five-year-old, but I'm just like, heck yeah, Califi death matches. <laughs> um, and you know, it, it just continued on through high school and college. And, you know, I, I, at least until 2005, that dark and bitter day that we all remember when suddenly every news article was enterprise has been canceled. Star Trek is done forever. <laughs> and I'm I'm so glad that's not the case because I never want to go back to that really uh, unfortunate period of history where there was about four years where it felt like, oh, that thing that you loved your entire life is just old and, and passe and there's no way to bring it back and there's no money in it. And I'm like, well, wait a second. Like, what am I going to do with all this lore in my head? <laughs> I feel like Prodigy, I mean, I'm a big fan of the J.J. movies, especially the first one. I feel like Prodigy is somewhat inspired by, certainly, I think Ben is inspired by the J.J. movies, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when people asked us, like, what, well, which Star Trek really are you pulling from with Star Trek Prodigy? And we say unabashedly all of it, because I think all of it has really amazing stuff that contributes to that sort of grand sort of choir uh, that that is what people think of when they think of Star Trek. Obviously, there are people, and this has been always the case for Star Trek fans, there, there are people that have their favorites and they insist, no, that's the only true Star Trek. Right. <laughs> the real Star Trek. Yeah, uh, which is patently not true. Uh, that's the no true Scotsman fallacy. fallacy. But, um, but so uh, when we were sort of given the mandate on Prodigy to introduce people to Star Trek, we were like, let's not be stingy. Let's pull from TOS. Let's pull from Deep Space Nine. Let's pull from Voyager. Let's pull from the J.J. Abrams movies. Let's pull from the TOS movies. Let's pull from the next generation. Let's let's push mush them all together into the same universe, which they all supposedly share. And so that's that was uh, and, you know, being our, that our show is now set in the mid 2380s, kind of separated out from more or less from the other shows and post Voyager and then pre Picard, uh, which even then hasn't really explored what's going on with Starfleet that much because of, you know, they're dealing with other stuff that's sort of outside of Starfleet. It was a pretty wide open canvas of about 25 years. And I think it would be, it would, we realized like, of course, like the, the March of Progress moves forward. They would take this technology from Voyager and integrate it. They'd find new designs. They'd test new ships. I think someone described once on a Tumblr post that the Starfleet is basically like an entire armada of Doc Browns constantly testing new, crazy <laughs> new technology and just seeing what sticks like spaghetti at the wall. Um, and I would say that's not inaccurate. We kind of took the same approach and we're like, you know, if they, what would an experimental ship look like post Voyager, post Nemesis, post everything? And we we realized like, well, you know, that those ideas that design wise or whatever that appeared in the Kelvin verse didn't come from nowhere. They came from uh, basically that Starfleet interacting with a ship from 2387. Well, we're almost to 2387. So why can't some of that design language start to be informed? In some ways, you know, almost like parallel evolution, 
you know, uh, it's same reason that we kept seeing the all good things com badge appear over and over again in alternate futures. Somebody out there clearly had the idea to make that all good things com badge, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and so uh, we, it made us realize like, well, we're, here we are nearing where the, that, that com badge would have appeared before Picard. So why not have it uh, start to actually appear? Speaking of uniforms, everyone was super excited in episode nine when you revealed the unique uniform for the prodigy crew i'm trying to figure like wh where did those those were made for the who made those <laughs> who made those uniforms like who else wears those uniforms uh yeah i mean there's a, <laughs> there's a reason that we didn't show them finding well we show him find it but we don't show him like say wow this is the provisional uniforms that were clearly on board you know but but uh, spiritually speaking, you know, non-canon answer was we didn't want them wearing ranked uniforms for ranks they hadn't earned yet. You know, we didn't want that sort of stolen valor element. But we but we realized there is very much a precedent in Star Trek, uh, you know, for, you know, young people that are on the bridge that are uh, sort of dipping their toes in these roles. You know, you have Wesley in that sort of gray and black uniform when he was a uh, uh, you know, even before he had been made a full ensign, he he had that outfit in season two of TNG, and uh, you have similar provisional uniforms prop up here and there, or uh, you know, sort of pre pre cadet uniforms uh, that are just sort of there and s without the ranks. So you know, in theory, you know, d were they replicated? Were they spares? They were probably spares, <laughs> I guess. Well, my. <laughs> It sounds like there isn't an answer because my headcanon was Janeway designed and created them and put one in there mm, for him I like to that. find. That's that's canon now. That's what happened. Nice. Okay. That <laughs> was like her little because he was he's in the captain's quarters. If he was to find something in the drawers, it would have been Chicote's. You're right. No, I, I I like that. I like that explanation. Uh, that's that's what happened. You're correct. You you nailed it. <laughs> I love it. Well. How, but what is the rule for when they roll out? Because they, they put on the uniforms, they did the thing, and then they took them off again. So is there like special, what's the special occasion? When do they decide, oh, we're going to, this is a uniform episode? Well, that's the thing is like, you know, they, they haven't been to Starfleet Academy. They haven't been officially inducted into Starfleet yet. So I think we ultimately decided, you know, it's sort of like how you can have uh, casual duty attire, you know, on Star Trek where, Picard just wears a cool jacket, you know, or a green tunic or whatever that has nothing to do with, with the official Starfleet uniform. You know, they, I think whenever they put on the Starfleet uniform, it's when they're trying to look, you know, presentable uh, for something they feel like is sem somewhat serious or uh, like uh, where for better, or for worse, they are acting in some quasi official capacity. But I don't think we ever wanted them to just be like, all right, well, I'm a Starfleet captain now because I put on the uniform and I said so. Um, so and that's something that I think you will see evolve over time as they kind of get more exposed to Starfleet. And, you know, rather than just sort of uh, being the right people in the right place at the right time, they start to understand truly what the uniform means and then eventually start working their way towards earning it. I think that's that's uh, you know that's that the rule I suppose is that is like whenever they they want to be in some for better or for worse quasi official capacity where 
they're the closest the thing to a Starfleet representative they might put on the uniforms. Uh, but you know, that doesn't mean they can't also have their, their casual duty attire or, you know, otherwise if we, if we didn't never have them change out of uniform, we would never have, I don't know, the, the cool like eighties, uh, workout uniforms that Gates McFadden <laughs> wears. So did zero find like a paint can on, on their bunk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it was a paint can. My guess is in, in Star Star Trek, they probably have some device. They always have something like that. It's like, oh, that's a uh, a cellular, cellular peptide uh, neuroregenerator <laughs> that can also double as a color changer. <laughs> Excellent. They rerouted the deflector dish, and he jumped in front of it. Right. They, slinged, they did a slingshot around the sun, <laughs> yes. and then they found the uniforms. <laughs> you mentioned it before, but yes or no, plush Murph by the end of the year. By Christmas season. Ooh, ooh, I have an answer for this. Uh, here's what I will say: there, there is merchandise coming, and there will be <laughs> there, there will be also some some uh, prodigy merchandise coming uh, to San Diego Comic Con. So, depending on when this episode comes out, uh, there's going to be some exclusive merch that you should keep an eye out for. That Tony's going to buy for me while he's there. This episode will come out a week before Comic Con. Now, yeah, because I notice you guys aren't going to be on the panel. It's just going it's going to be uh, Picard, Strange New Worlds, and Lower Decks. I think is gonna yeah. Be I, I think th- I think that that uh, there's so many Star Trek uh, shows on the air right now that uh, <laughs> I think to try to cram in you know four or five or whatever at the same panel you get shortchanged. So, but there don't worry, there will be other appearances of Prodigy at, at future cons. We're told that 1B, is that what we're supposed to call it? Season 1B will come this year, likely after Lower Decks. But do you know the day? Um, I do know a day, but I'm not allowed to say it yet because, you know, <laughs> again, way above my pay grade of the scheduling and programming. But a day has been selected, Correct. I guess. Is- yes. Okay, and it is in 2022. Yes, I, I can, as of now, unless something radical happens that I'm unaware, unaware of, you will see all 10 episodes out on uh, Paramount Plus before uh, the end of 2022. Great. Oh, well, that that's actually kind of news, because if you count backwards from 10 from December 31st, that means that it will be, because I thought like it could start in December or November, and doing the math, it sounds more like October. Not that we're holding you to it. <laughs> ten, the, ten new episodes coming in 2022. <laughs> okay. Do you think we might find get that date at Comic Con or what? You know, uh, I I honestly don't know. Uh, so stay tuned. Do you know anything about the the merchandise that's coming? Like I have so many. Quite like, are there going to be wind ups? <laughs> uh, I mean, yes, I know exactly what it is, but I don't want to spoil the surprise. Right. One thing we do know is there's a game coming um, called Supernova. Yes. Is the writer's room or you or anyone, you know, I know the voice actors are involved, but mm-hmm. how much are you guys involved? Uh, so, you know, we kind of gave our, our blessing. And then the, the head writer slash story editor for that was Lisa Schultz Boyd, who was uh, one of the staff writers of uh, uh, season one of Prodigy. So she, she of the first 10, she wrote uh, Dreamcatcher. Excellent. And Excellent. and the finale she co-wrote with all of us. Uh the, cool. the mid-season finale. And that comes out this year. So that's very exciting. So there is so the, the the prodigy merchandise train is going to start rolling down the track this year, it sounds like. 
Yes, uh, we. Uh, I think they released images of the toys as well of of the first round of the action figures, which I think are also, right from play from Playmates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which yeah. I believe are also coming out this year. And I've I've seen other toys that haven't been announced yet that also look very cool. <laughs> so don't, don't worry, they're coming. You're such a tease. We'll have to have you back <laughs> after one B before two A. I guess. Uh, yes. Somewhere. <laughs> Why don't you just call it season one, two, three, and four? It's I'm sorry, it just bugs I, me. Okay, I it's again beyond my pay grade. We structured it as ten episode arcs, so make of that what you will. Okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. it really did feel like a full season, a short yeah. season, but a full season. Well, the, I mean, so- yeah, I mean, emotionally and structurally, it was designed to tell somewhat of a self-contained arc, but with plenty of story threads to, that you could pull to have it continue on to the next. And that's, I think, how I would prefer everybody see at least these 40 episodes is like they are meant to be holistically telling a a, a, a saga, right? So there's going to be some stuff that feels like it's naturally wrapped up in 10, some at 20. There are going to be some things that you'll realize if we had tried to shoehorn them into the first 20, it would have been deeply unsatisfying. So they actually become, you know, something that that becomes a, a major player in the next 20. But they are all part of the same story that is kind of like the, I, I suppose you could call it the book one and two or the book one or whatever you want to call it of, of the prodigy story. So yeah, it, don't worry. The things that you want answered will be answered. The characters you want to see will be in there, but we, we spent a lot of time talking about this and figuring it out where best to play that so that it feels satisfying and uh, it, it worth the, the, the trouble than rather just kind of dropping them in for two episodes and saying, ha ha, now that's wrapped up. Goodbye. <laughs> and in addition to the ongoing sort of plot part of it, I, I'm hoping, and I feel like you're going to say yes to this, but that the emotional intensity and all those beats are still going to be just as strong as we go forward. Oh, yes. If anything, it's going to get more emotional <laughs> as time goes on. And not just in a sad, you know, traumatic way, but in in like you're you're rooting for these characters and you want to see them even when they stumble to get back up and, you know, fight for what not only they've come to believe in, but but we as the audience believe in. Um, And, you know, uh, I I don't think this is a spoiler, but, you know, there's going to be some tears shed, I think, at the end of the first 20 um it's it's a i i still tear up even when i'm just looking at it like an effect shot <laughs> and uh it's it you know i think star trek is always painted in very broad strokes you know whether it be at philosophy or you know the the limits of duty and honor and you know how how to best be of service to others while finding yourself uh, out in the cold recesses of space and, it, and I think it's always with your crew and what they're willing to do with you uh, or for you. So, yeah. And given that this is a show for kids, so are you working with anyone who can sort of say you, you can't do that for kids or this is how kids psychology works or anything like that? And have you had to pull back on any of the intensity because of that? Um, I mean, the short answer is no, actually. Like both Alex Kurtzman and Secret Hideout and the Roddenberry productions and Nickelodeon and CBS have all seen what we're trying to do with this show. And they basically said, keep it up. Um, Great. And, you know, it it was, that was really great, you know, especially early on when we took a lot of bold swings and, you know, 
uh, I, I distinctly remember when, um, when the folks like um, Rod Roddenberry and Trevor Roth came in from Roddenberry Productions, we were all kind of like holding our breath, like, what did they think? And they and they just brought us cookies, and they were like, "Great work! Your my dad would be proud." And like, oh. I almost got choked up um, hearing that. And then uh, I think the only time I can think of where we got a little bit of, you know, can we adjust this um, was on paper, uh, the episode uh, uh, Time Amok uh, was, you know, it's a little intense in that it is the ship and all the people on it blowing up over and over again. And there's, there is that, I remember when we turned in the first draft, there's a little bit of thought from the network, like, oh my gosh, this is really intense. We, can we show that? I don't know. And we were like, no, no. We're, the the point of it is, as long as there's one of us, all of us have hope, and and like that thread of like tr- you know, for better for worse, putting all of your trust and your faith and your compatriots on this starship is what eventually gets gets you through. With the least likely of them, you know, Sans Murph being Rock Talk, the person who initially sort of rejected it as the little girl, being the one that suddenly all their hopes are right writing on, and she comes through. We felt like that was a, a really important lesson, and to their immense credit, Nickelodeon, when they saw the draft, not just the outline, they were like, "I, I teared up. This is a beautiful story." I was, you know, and you, 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 you hit exactly what you were describing. The one thing they asked us to change was in the original draft, we said how long she was trapped in, uh, in that sort of slow, fractured time, and they said, uh, "That can we not." say that long has passed and so that we just changed it to too long can you tell us how much time you initially i i think i'm gonna leave it up to the imagination because uh in some ways i think that's more intense (laughs) yeah i mean it was a really intense thing to watch for sure like just that the sadness and the loneliness like to me that's I th- I think now how affected I was watching that as a so-called adult. Yeah. So as a kid, I would have been, you know, having just on the floor. <laughs> What's funny is like I think adults in some ways were more deeply affected by it <laughs> than than kids were because I think adults kind of understood what was going on in a way that was a little bit more profound, whereas kids are like, it's okay, I hang out my room all the time right. by myself. <laughs> What I loved about, I mean, I loved many things about the show, but one of the things I feel really worked in the first 10 was a great balance with the tone of the show. Um, So, yeah, it did have some emotional beats that were tough, but it also was light and it was fun and there was a lot of hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just I mean, obviously, Jankum and Murph are a lot, you know, but there's there's a lot of humor throughout maybe not the diviner he's not exactly hilarious but the (laughs) um the everyone you know so would you say is that the tone of the show or do you feel like the tone also changes in each of your blocks of 10 i think that there's always going to be a desire for a few factors and that comes from again the 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 distinct and and purposeful choice that we make of finding something that works for everybody. And we always want there to be sort of action and drama, but also, you know, interesting ideas and heart. And I think if you can hit those and heart usually means a little bit of humor, a little bit of levity, moments where you really uh, laugh along with the characters of the insanity of what they're dealing with or, or uh, as they figure things out or get things wrong. Um, 
you know, and I think if you have those elements uh, in there, it allows a pretty wide palette to draw from. And I, you know, will the tone change a little bit from season to season? Of course, because they're growing up and uh, we want our sh- characters to grow up. We don't want Bart Simpson to be, you know, eight years old for 20 years. Um, and we want the real events of Star Trek that happen in canon to have an impact on our characters too. So, you know, like, the, and there there's some stuff coming up in, in the 2380s that, we're not just going to ignore. So, you know, I think in that regard, it's not so much will the tone always be exactly the same, but it's like, will the spirit of it uh, evolve with the characters? And I think that 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 striving for a better future, that that hope, finding it in ourselves and bringing it to others uh, that I think embodies what Starfleet really is, is always going to be there. Well, I'm super excited to see what happens next. I'm excited for you to see it. Yeah. I've like talk about, a you know, this absence, the absence of prodigy specifically has been wearing on me. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I wish we could uh, just drop them all at once. But uh, the, the, the hard truth is that it's a very difficult show to make. And yeah. we, we need, if we release the episodes that they were in now, you know, they just wouldn't be finished. So, you know, uh, I suppose good things come to those who wait and, uh, <laughs> you know, that at least you won't see characters just floating around in T-poses or missing an arm <laughs> randomly. <laughs> like that might actually, be a bit traumatizing. Yes. I was going to say, sometimes they were on the animated series. There's like things where someone doesn't have a leg. There's, there's stuff yeah. like that. that but that, that, there's something something charming about that, that I, I think that in CGI, it's a little less forgiving. <laughs> yes, I would agree. <laughs> Well, you know, thank you for this extended conversation. Thank you for joining us for our 100th episode and talking about your love of Star Trek and, of course, Prodigy. Hey, it's my pleasure. Like, it's truly an honor to be uh, on your 100th episode. I feel like if this is a 90s sitcom, you could have just done a clip show and looking back. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad to, I suppose, be the emissary of Star Trek here, just uh, both looking back and presenting what could be ahead uh so thank you for having me and uh should i should i plug stuff can i plug stuff yeah please do first of all look out for those next 10 episodes of of uh, star trek prodigy coming later this year uh the first 10 are also airing on nickelodeon as we speak so please check that out be sure to watch it uh live you know believe it or not that those numbers do make a difference uh especially for nickelodeon uh who is paying for all this and uh is was have given us the leeway to make this incredible show and then be sure to check out if you're at san diego comic-con keep an eye out for exclusive star trek uh, prodigy merchandise that will be there i won't ruin what it's going to be and uh, you know, feel free to follow me on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, G-O-O-D-A-A-R-O-N. That's at Good Aaron. And uh, I always try to k- keep people abreast of anything new that's coming down the pipeline for Star Trek Prodigy. And and you ramp it up during, like when the season starts, you and the Hagemans really ramp things up quite a bit on talking about the, you know, just once an episode drops, you start. Yes. Let, letting us know everything about putting it together, et cetera. And, and Ben Hibon is really good about that too. Absolutely. Yeah. So go check, find them and follow them as well. And uh, I do want to plug, actually, uh, if you aren't following them already, follow at Trek Prodigy Room. 
That's the official Star Trek Prodigy Writers Room Twitter. It's got a blue check mark and everything. And when we get to <laughs> 10,000, the Hagemans have promised the Star Trek writers will get a pizza party. So don't deny us pizza, please. Please go follow <laughs> at Trek Prodigy Room. We'll do what we can to help that happen. Yeah, <laughs> Thank saw, you so much. I saw Kate Mulgrew had shared that one too, trying to help you guys get that pizza party. Yes, we're very, we're tantalizingly close. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. So uh, we're going to beam you back home. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, that was a great, long, rich, fun interview. I have to say the part that, that our listeners didn't hear is where we told him we were worried about time. And he was like, no, just keep going. My wife's out for a jog. Let's keep talking. So he was he would have talked to us probably for another hour. I mean, we didn't cover all of our pre-planned notes, actually, but yet it didn't feel like we hadn't covered everything. But there were things we could have talked about. And, you know, I'd love to talk to him more about his favorite episodes of DS9, you know, and everything, you know. Yeah, I'd love to just talk to him about other Star Trek. Like, I yeah. feel like that would be a really fun conversation. He's also a, re- a really um, intelligent, articulate guy who's clearly read a lot, studied a lot, learned a lot, and incorporates all of that into his writing and the way that he thinks about things. Well, I'm sure he's uh, listening. So oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> can't wait to have you back. Um, and let's move on to our bits of the week. I'm going to call back to the um, Blu-ray from season two of Lower Decks, which is out this week. And in one of the special features is audio commentaries. So in the episode, An Embarrassment of Duplers, remember there's a party scene and there's a bunch of Starfleet people. There's a Vulcan Admiral. And if you look closely, it is actually designed to look like Mike McMahon himself as a Vulcan Admiral. So he's, he's got himself into the show. Good for him. Fun. I, I, it was actually, yeah, it wasn't his idea. Like the the, the artists did this on their right. own. <laughs> um, he got into uh, Rick and Morty too. So, yep. What's your um, bit of the week? Mine is just a very fun bit of trivia. I was watching, as everybody knows, the Delta Flyers obsessed. Hello, and uh, Lee Ehrenberg was the guest, and he's done a lot of Star Trek. He's been on Deep Space Nine and Voyager, Next Generation, and Enterprise. And he's been in a lot of other stuff. Um, But so he was chatting with them. And then he happened to mention that his brother, Dr. John Ehrenberg, is the chief engineer of the James Webb Telescope. Wow. And, you know, we've all been looking at those gorgeous images this week. And so I just thought it was really cool that he's like one of the designers and he's been working on the project for a long time. And you can easily he's on Twitter also. And he says, you know, he says nice things about his brother sometimes. So I just thought that's such an interesting direct star trek connection to the big telescope just a fun fact i'm sure his nasa nerdy friends are asking him about his star trek brother all the time <laughs> and uh you know for the genre fans he's also pirate to the caribbean and once upon a time so <laughs> he's covered it all so that's it for episode 100 thank you for our longtime listeners who've been through all 100 episodes or for our new listeners since podcast is always growing and just a reminder next week is comic-con we're taking the week off 
Um, we'll be back the week after that. We'll probably be focusing that week on all the news out of Comic-Con. And if anyone, by the way, wants to see what Aaron looks like in his Guinness Book of World Records wearing all the t-shirts pictures, we've got a link to that. We have more episodes planned for August before the return of Star Trek Lower Deck Season 3, which just happens to arrive on the first day of Star Trek Las Vegas. All right. So we'll watch it together. Exciting. Thanks for listening. <laughs>